Good morning, Abundant Life Church. My name is Erin. I am the online campus pastor here at Abundant Life. And it is always such a joy and privilege to be able to come up from Southern Oregon to teach here in this beautiful Pacific Northwest. Uh, if you were in Sandy or Vancouver, you know what I am talking about. It is like a summer day. And to those of you online, wherever you're watching from, I'm so glad that you are here. If you are just joining us, we are in week two of a series called Little Stories, Big Picture. Now, maybe you have a Bible that you got in your youth. And like my mom, the pages are falling out. You have had to get it rebound so that uh, you don't lose your pages with notes and colorful highlighting. Her Bible is so loved and so read. Uh, and, and she is truly a studier of scripture. Now, maybe you are newer to the faith. Maybe you don't have a Bible please do not leave today. If you are watching online, fill out a connection card, write down your address and just write Bible. I guess you're typing. Type Bible. I will send you a Bible. Of course, uh, if you are at one of our campuses, Sandy or Vancouver, go to the starting point desk and do not leave today without a Bible if you do not have one. We know that you can access scripture online through various Bible apps. Uh, sometimes it's just nice to have a book on your bedstand uh, to encourage you to read it. Whether you've read a lot of scripture or very little, it can be intimidating and challenging. Our hope in this series is that we will look at these little stories in the Old Testament and see how they point to the life and ministry of Jesus, ultimately pointing to the big picture of God's redemptive love for the world. Old Testament scripture is holy and inspired. Also, if you are reading the Old Testament uh, through the lens of it being a different God or a God that looks different from Jesus, it can be both uh, damaging, hurtful, confusing. Uh, we want to find love and grace in the Old Testament. And the way that we do that as 21st century believers, you know, unlike the people in the stories that we are studying, we have the New Testament. We have the full image of God as pictured in Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected again. So when we read these Old Testament stories, we want to read through the lens of Christ crucified. Pastor David Gregg picked off the series strong last week, looking at Adam and Eve and the fall, and even in their disobedience, how our loving, grace-filled God came to provide for their every need, ultimately making a way for them to be reconciled back to him, for us sinners to be reconciled back to him. This week, we are going to be looking at the story of Daniel and some hungry lions. This uh, story is found in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel chapter six. So whether you have your physical Bible or an app on your phone or device, turn there to chapter six. For now, I am going to summarize and give you a brief historical overview about Daniel. A king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army ransack Jerusalem. Several teenagers from Israel are taken captive, Daniel being one of them. You may have also heard of his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
they are all put through an intense and rigorous re-education process to learn the Babylonian culture. Now, while they are learning the new culture, Daniel and his friends remain faithful to God through their entire lives. Daniel is described as handsome, intelligent, trustworthy, wise, responsible, righteous. Time and time again, he does not compromise his faith, uh, his convictions, and he is known truly as a person of outstanding moral character. By chapter six, where we are picking up the story, Daniel is likely in his 80s. So if you remember a flannel board in your youth uh, go attending you know, your, your Bible school, um, Sunday school class with the flannel board and those cute little images, a lot of times Daniel is young and strapping. He was older. He was likely gray-haired in his 80s in the time of the lion and the den. Um, so to summarize, there are 28 verses. Instead of reading them all, I'm going to give my best recap. We're going to read some directly from scripture. I'm going to paraphrase some, and we're going to watch a couple of video clips just for fun. King Darius uh, is in rule at the time, and he appoints 120 officers, one over each province in his kingdom. Of those 120 uh, uh, officers, he appoints three administrators. So this is like another tier up of leadership. Now of those three, Daniel is one of those three and he is the best. He stands out as being uh, extra quality and the other two administrators are jealous. Just for fun, uh, I want to play a quick clip from Veggie Tales. It is one of my favorite episodes, and I realize this uh, gives me away as a child of the 90s. Check out this adorable clip, and I apologize in advance for the song that will be likely stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Check this out. Oh no, what we gonna do? The king likes Daniel more than me and you. Oh no, what we gonna do? We gotta get him out of here. Oh no, what we gonna do? The king likes Daniel more than me and you. Oh no, what we gonna do? We gotta get him out of here. The song continues, we will throw him in the dungeon. Like this is a whole song. You got to go to YouTube and play it for your kids. What is less cute is what scripture actually tells us. So we are going to be in Daniel chapter six, verse four, picking up this story. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Because Daniel is a human, I would expect some error. Didn't cross a T, didn't dot an I. He clearly, his hand is in many government affairs, and surely there would at least be a mistake. It's not like these conspirators are trying to just stumble upon a mistake. They are actively and intentionally pursuing some fault, finding a fault in Daniel, and they cannot. No error is found. Not even an accident, a mistake, a misstep. Daniel is found absolutely faultless, 
And so these conspirators have to get creative in setting Daniel up to fail. They convince King Darius, uh, knowing Daniel and his faithfulness to God, they convince King Darius to sign a decree that anyone who prays to anyone besides King Darius, divine or human, for the next 30 days would be thrown in the den of lions. Now, I like to call this a 10 response to a two event. And I will explain to you what I mean by that. When my child is like, Ugh. and I'm like, what's, what's wrong? And the answer is, I wanted the blue cup. That's a 10 response to a two event, right? And I can't even be too upset about it because as a parent, as an adult, I do this also. In my parental guidance, uh, I will sometimes give a 10 response to a two event. I will explain. We recently painted our walls and my son, I thought it was pencil. I said, I said, who colored on the wall with pencil? Then I looked closer and actually it was like etching and there was a paper clip opened. That's not even safe. I found the guilty party. He confessed. And I said, if you ever do this again, you will be grounded for your whole life. To which I heard chuckling from the other room because of course my husband knows that is an empty threat that is so emotional and so over the top. And my four-year-old can't even comprehend what that would mean. It's empty words, but a 10 response to a two event. Now, Arguably, maybe it was like a three event because, again, the weapon that he made with the paperclip. Anyway, King Darius signing this, you will be thrown into the lion's den to your, really, your death, seems so dramatic and like a 10 response to an event of someone praying. The only thing I can think is that maybe King Darius was apathetic with it not being his own law and figured this is an easy law to follow. So who cares what the consequence is, right? Like even if you were going to break this law, you'd probably just keep it under wraps, pray quietly to yourself. How are they really going to enforce this? It would only be a public uh, display that would really send someone to the den of lions. Now, regardless of why he did it, uh, he signed this law into effect. Let's pick up and read verse 10. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. The conspirators, of course, are thrilled, see this, and bring Daniel's offense before the king. Check out his response in verse 14. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled. And he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. The narrator describes King Darius as being on an emotional roller coaster, crying out anxiously, hardly sleeping, expressing hope that Daniel's God would save him. King Darius is clearly on the side of Daniel, but not able to control his fate. And don't miss the irony here. King Darius signs a law that seems to elevate him to semi-divine status, right? Worship me as if I am God. But instead of making him all powerful, it actually makes the king powerless to his own law. 
forcing him to do what he does not want to do. He has become friends. He has developed a friendship with Daniel, this higher up, who is clearly responsible and trustworthy. And he is now a dupe of his own law, having to send his friend into the den of lions. He's not able to rescue Daniel. Daniel's thrown in. And the next morning, the king goes with a heavy heart to check on Daniel. And this is where God's miracle is seen. We're going to watch one more uh, little videos from this VeggieTales episode. Check this out. The next morning, everyone ran down to the lion's den to see what was left of Daniel. It's hopeless. No one could survive a night with those lions. Hello? Did you hear something? Hello? Daniel, is that you? Oh uh, yeah, I'll be right up. I just have to say goodbye to my new friend. <gasps> it's... it's impossible. Yes, it is. Well, hello, everybody. See you guys later. Thanks for the pizza. We had pizza? Well, it's a miracle. Surely your God is above all men. Now I understand. For even at the bottom of the lion's den, you were in his hand. I've got it a new law. From this day forth, everyone will pray only to Daniel's God. No more of this silly praying to me business. Well, whose idea was that, anyway? Oh, yes, I remember. Okay, now let's turn to scripture and read it in Daniel's words. No, there is not mention of a pizza party. Daniel says, My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me for I have been found innocent in his sight. First of all, this is amazing. Second, this stirs up so many more questions for me. Like a whole night happened and this is the one sentence recap we get of a night in a lion's den. It reminds me of my husband, Travis, who, if you don't know him, he is very understated, even keel. He's a straight shooter. He is probably the most drama-free person that I have ever met. And for all these qualities, I love him so much. Also, it is very frustrating when I get just a partial, a partial uh, bit of information, a fraction of what I want to know. An example of this, I was nine months pregnant uh, with our son, Benjamin, and he, Travis wanted to plan a work event. Hey, Eric, can I plan a work event? It's actually for nine days after your due date. Well, our first child came 10 days after her due date. So I was thinking I will either be pregnant or maybe go into labor or maybe still have a day. Yes. Uh, I don't know how long it'll be. He's like, I don't know yet. I'll figure out the details. The day came. What was the event? It was a mud run. Where was it? In the non-reception hills of Hillsborough. And how long was it? All day. Because, of course, the driving, the meeting up. The, and yes, I had our son, Benjamin. I gave birth to him on the day, actually the evening of the mud run. And yes, as I was laboring, I could not get a hold of him. But he did make it back for the birth. I've also hoped for more information in this portion from Daniel. So while I would just want the information, 
you sometimes you have to know the information to ask. And if I were there, just so you know, I'd be like, did you know you were going to be okay the whole time? It says that the lion's mouths were shut, which indicates to me that they wanted to devour him. They, it had to be like an active shutting of their mouths. But have you ever seen a lion? Like a full-grown lion is 400 pounds. I mean, just like the paws could do damage. Like it's not like the only harm that could be done could be done to Daniel would be him being eaten, right? Like he could have been harmed. Did they fall asleep? Were the lions afraid? You can see the wheels turning and how this only creates more questions in my mind. I actually think if Daniel did have a weakness, it was a lack of attention to detail in his story recapping. And uh, maybe one day I'll get the answers to some of my questions. What would it be like to sleep in a den of hungry lions? Uh, I would have more to say coming out of the den. Regardless of how it happened, Daniel was alive and unharmed and everyone was amazed. King Darius writes a new decree. We can read that in verse 26 to 27. He says, I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. This is the same king who just wrote a decree, only worship me. For he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. What a dramatic shift in King Darius. Now singing the praises of Almighty God, declaring that all in his kingdom should fear and give reverence to the God of Daniel. In the spirit of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, I put together a typology chart because as I was reading, I kept finding these similarities between Jesus. At first, it started out with just uh, three or four. And then as I continued to read uh, this passage and then Matthew 27 and 28 from uh, Jesus and his trial and kind of this time before he went to the cross, I noticed similarity after similarity. And so I created a chart and uh, I wanted to put this up. If you're a note taker, it's going to stay up there so you'll have some time. Yes, these men are uh, similar, obviously Jesus being the greater and divine, but both men had exemplary character, humbly stood against demonic evil, suffered greatly for their faith. Daniel lived a righteous life. Jesus lived a perfect life. Both traveled with a few faithful friends through adversity and hardship, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as I had previously mentioned for Daniel, and of course the disciples for Jesus, both had tremendous wisdom and great authority helping rule over kingdoms for Daniel, the kingdom of Babylon, and for Jesus, the kingdom of heaven. Both prayed right before their arrest, Daniel three times facing Jerusalem, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, also overlooking Jerusalem, the Bible has nothing bad to say about either man. Both men were plotted against out of envy, wrongfully accused and arrested on false charges, and even the political leaders overseeing the process declared them innocent. And I want to read here from Matthew 27, verse 24, describing Jesus's trial. Pilate, the Roman governor who presided at the trial of Jesus, uh, he's the one who gave the order for Jesus' crucifixion. 
Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death. We and our children. That is actually hard for me to read and makes me cringe. Pilate, yes, authorized the order, but he was not wanting to crucify Jesus. Both men were placed in a tomb or a pit with a stone covering the entrance uh, from which they were both miraculously delivered alive, both trusted God. And lastly, on our typology chart, Daniel was unharmed by the lions and Jesus was very much harmed, ultimately leading to his death. But both emerged from the ditch and tomb victorious and very much alive. So besides all these parallels we see in Daniel and Jesus, what does the 21st century Bible reader have to gain from reading this story? And how does Daniel and the lions ultimately impact our faith and inspire us to be more like Jesus? I've identified three practical takeaways from the story of Daniel and the lions. If you are a note taker, they are coming up here on the screen now. One, choose faith. Two, devote your life to worship. And three, trust God no matter the circumstance. We are going to unpack each of these. First, choose faith. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Do not underestimate the power of choice. Every day we make choices. We get to co-author our stories. We get to choose how to live. And I encourage you, church, choose Jesus today. Now, what grows a person's faith? I don't know that anything grows it more than a personal encounter with Jesus. And I pray that each of us listening or watching today would feel and experience Jesus personally. Then, of course, a pattern of experience as you grow in relationship with him grows your faith. Daniel clearly encountered God in an authentic way that made faith possible. And another important part of Daniel growing his faith and us growing our faith if we choose to is establishing healthy disciplines. Read scripture, pray, spend time getting to know the character of God, because this discipline uh, builds relationship and relationship builds faith. Devote your life to worship, point number two, or takeaway, I should say. Daniel lives a life of worship. Uh, verse 10 from chapter six says, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual, circle or underline as usual, in his upstairs room. With its windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Circle that, just as he had always done peace. I think it's important that this is in here. It didn't need, it, need to be included, but what it shows us is a pattern, healthy discipline, a lifestyle of worship. He didn't hear this decree and say, I'm going to be a martyr for the cause. I'm going to be showing. No, he did what he always did. And what he always did is pray to his almighty God, offering 
thanks. How did he devote himself to worship? He practiced. And what I want to say here is uh, don't reduce worship to singing. I love singing. I uh, enjoy especially worshiping alongside other believers and seekers. But if we are thinking and putting worship in the box of music, it is a very limited picture of what worship can be. Have you ever heard the expression, worship is a lifestyle? What does that really mean? I think Daniel could be the poster child for worship as a lifestyle. Daniel living a life void of corruption and dishonesty was worship from his youth, uh, learning the way of the Babylonians while not compromising his faith to the almighty God, his father, was worship. Him praying was worship, not just when he got caught and thrown in the den, all those times that he prioritized prayer, that was a, a, an act of devotion and worship to God. Daniel disregarding a law that compromised his faith was worship. Daniel respecting authority and kindness and humility while not compromising his faith was worship. Daniel physically being thrown into the den of lions was worship through surrender and an act of devotion and loyalty. Don't miss the irony here either. The conspirators think they have finally found Daniel's weakness. Prayer, right? They set him up. And actually his devotion to prayer and worship is Daniel's greatest strength. It activates the power of God to close the lion's mouths. Devote your life to worship. Practical takeaway number three, trust God no matter the circumstances. What builds trust? I was talking to my husband, Travis, on a recent road trip. And he said something that was so simple and also so profound and true. He said, you trust someone, the more you know them. Well, or you trust them less, the more you know them. And yes, uh, I did ask the tech team to add swoon and that heart eye emoji. Uh, that is for you, Travis. Hope that you are chuckling at home next to me. What builds trust? I think relationship, communication, behavior. What breaks trust? I think relationship, communication, behavior. Yes, the variables are the same for building and breaking trust, but these variables can look really different, right? Is the relationship healthy or dysfunctional? Is the communication respectful, honest, kind? Or is it belittling, harsh, condescending, unsafe? Does a person's behavior reflect a pattern of follow-through? Or time and time again, does her behavior or his behavior prove to be unreliable and undependable? Here's what I observe about Daniel. Daniel did not know the outcome of the lions. He wasn't trusting God to save him from the lions. I'm gonna say that again. Daniel was not trusting God to save him from the lions. He was trusting God, period. I found this quote by Merv Russell. He said, God could have kept Daniel out of the lion's den, but God has never promised to keep us out of hard places. What he has promised is to go with us through every hard place and bring us through victoriously. 
Whether he got devoured or not, Daniel trusted who God was, that he was sovereign and good. Devoured or not, Daniel knew God was worthy of his trust and that he would ultimately be victorious no matter the outcome. That's trust. And we also see that earlier in Daniel in chapter three from his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, wants them to pray to this golden statue. Unlike Darius, who was uh, friendly and didn't care so much about this law, King Nebuchadnezzar was like, you better bow down to me. And when they didn't, he was like, heat the fiery furnace hotter than it's ever been heated. I mean, it was a different king. Uh, But look at the faithfulness and response of these faithful servants of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied in verse 16, chapter 3, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. What I love here is the respectful defiance. They are saying, no, our God is greater. Our God is above you, your majesty. They are still acknowledging and respecting him as the authority while acknowledging and respecting God as the authority above him. It is such an inspiration. Daniel and his friends, no matter the outcome, they trusted God. And so did Jesus. Before going to the cross, Jesus asked to be spared. Asked if there was any other way. Matthew 26, verse 39 says, He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus trusted his father. He didn't trust him to save him from the cross. Jesus trusted that when he went to the cross, it would be used for God's glory and our salvation. The book of Daniel was written for Israel uh, in a time of exile in Babylon. This story was intended to encourage Israel, right? God can save Daniel from the lions. Surely he can save you from uh, your exile, from the pit of exile in Babylon. Much like Daniel, we Christians are also exiled in this world. For us, this story and ultimately the story of Jesus resurrecting from the grave is meant to encourage God's people today to remain faithful to God, to trust that he is able to deliver us from our exile in this fallen world in this fallen world. Let's read Paul's words in Philippians 3, 20, verse, yeah, 20 to 21. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Now, if you're hearing this and you're like, whoa, 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 Pastor David last week taught that the earth is a beautiful place meant to be loved, respected, and cared for because it's God's creation. And to that, I would say yes and amen. But the kingdoms of this world are not our forever home. We can trust 
that the living God will deliver us from every evil in this world and ultimately from death. I want to close with a quote by Sidney Gradanis in his book, Preaching Christ in Daniel. He says this, we can trust our living God to deliver us from that final enemy, death. He raised Daniel from the lion's pit. He raised Jesus from the dead. He will also raise us and bring us home into his glorious kingdom. Will you pray with me? God, will you help us? We want to experience you. We want to encounter you. Like Daniel, we want to grow our faith. We want to encounter more and more of you, Jesus. Help us to devote our lives to worship, intentionally pursuing you, bringing glory to your name with each new day. And God, help us to trust you. You are so good. You are so sovereign, loving, grace-filled. You are so worthy of our trust. We love you, God, and we praise you, and we worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.